Good morning, and uh, happy Father's Day. Um, when the sign actually came up off on, on the screen at the beginning, I thought it said Slappy Father's Day. And uh, <laughs> Daniel, my son, duly did slap me, so it's uh, the joys of being a parent, huh? My talk this morning isn't strictly isn't really a Father's Day message, um, but there is a Father's Day application at the end, so uh, work with me on that. Um, but I felt this is what God wanted me to say. So, um, In fact, today's sermon is entitled, Everything You Do Will Fail. Um, I wanted to say that up front so that no one accuses me later of false advertising or anything, okay? Um, but stick with me, though, because that isn't the end of the story. Each of us, when we come, have come today, we're coming with just from a different place. Some of us are going to be full of plans, full of excitement, full of great things happening in our lives. Others of us may be coming and really struggling, um, just making it day by day, uh, taking one step at a time, maybe not even feeling like we can do that. I think it's, it's natural that we all come from different places. But I think all of us at some point in our lives are going to reach a point where um, we feel like we've poured ourselves into something and it all seems to be for nothing. In fact, I would go as far as to say that unless Jesus comes first, all of us will have that experience where we reach a point where we've poured ourselves in and it seems to be for nothing. Maybe it's that you've poured yourself into a job that you love and then you get fired. Maybe it's that you have all kinds of plans for your life and then a debilitating illness comes along and stops you and just grinds everything to a standstill. Maybe you've poured your life into a spouse who then leaves you. Maybe it's a child that you've raised with love and then they walk away from you and from God. Uh, maybe it's simply, uh, you know, you've loved somebody and then they've died. Or maybe it's for ourselves the fact that as we get older, we reach the point where we are going to die. There are so many ways in which we can feel like life is a struggle or a disappointment. Um, and if you're feeling that way now, then this sermon is for you. And if you're not feeling that way now, then either you have in the past or you will in the future. And if you can be prepared now for the future, then you're going to be more ready for it when it comes. The other week I started reading the book of Jeremiah. It's a long book of prophecy, uh, and these are the verses it starts with. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. That's my passage for today. Um, it might seem a bit dry. You might look at that and think, well, what are you going to get out of that? Um, bear with me. It's, really, it is. It's the first three verses of Jeremiah. It's just the introduction to the book, right? 
I'm sure most of you are familiar with Jeremiah. Um, not personally, obviously. I'm not saying any of you are that old. Um, he spoke during the time. He spoke to the people of the southern kingdom of Judah. This is after the people of Israel had split into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. By the time Jeremiah spoke, the northern kingdom had gone into exile. God had uh, given them messages again and again to warn them about turning away from him, and eventually he had allowed the Assyrians to come and take them away. And Jeremiah was coming, and God came to him and said, I want you to speak to the southern kingdom, the remaining kingdom, which he was part of. And Jeremiah didn't want to do it. He said, I'm too young. But actually, the reason God chose him as a young man was because God had plans for him to speak for a long time to come. You can see that there. It was actually a period of 40 years that he spoke. Actually longer, because he continued to speak after the exile. And his message was to confront the people of Judah with their sin. The idea was, God was saying, same as he'd said to the northern kingdom, confront them with their sin or they will have the same thing happen to them. They will be destroyed, and Jerusalem, the capital, will be destroyed. And here's a sample of his message. <clears throat> One of the things that he said. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my place, for my name, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, I de declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. And that's what struck me about these first verses in Jeremiah. Jeremiah spoke, it says here, from the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, through the reign of Jehoiakim, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. My point was, he spoke for 40 years to these people over and over and over again until the point where his whole ministry was shown to be a failure. The point of Jeremiah's ministry was that this destruction would not happen. He came to speak to them to say, turn from your sins and then you'll be saved. In fact, at one point, God even says, look, tell you what, just keep the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath and I'll let you stay in the land. That's all. And they still rejected even that. There's a whole other sermon there which I won't do today. But he had this one message, repent or be destroyed. He, it's not like he had other messages or other ministries as well. It's not like he could say, well, this one failed, but at least my other stuff worked. You know, I had this other sideline that, that was successful. He had one message, one thing to say, and it didn't work. The, the result was nothing. In fact, he continued to speak the message to the people after the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, the people had received the punishment that God had given them. Um, 
Jeremiah's words had been proved true, so did the people listen to him then? No. They still rejected him. And Jeremiah was dragged down to Egypt by a group of runaways who uh, they took him with him, and he continued to preach to them there as they continued to reject God, and he died there. End of ministry, end of life. And if you think that Jeremiah could derive some satisfaction from the fact that his uh, words had come true, um, then you've sadly mistaken Jeremiah. He was miserable about the fact that his words were coming true. Um, he had people coming to him saying, come on then, make your, let's see your words come true. And he was there going, Lord, you know, I'm praying that my words don't come true. Um, I don't want this to happen to the people. Um, and he went through the destruction of Jerusalem. And here's some of the things he, he wrote a whole book of Lamentations after that, uh, which records how he felt about the destruction of Jerusalem. Here's some of it. My eyes fail from weeping. I'm in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is bread and wine? Apparently kids had wine in those days. Um, as they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their lives ebb away in their mother's arms. Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and young women have fallen by the sword. He loved his people so much. He didn't want them destroyed. He saw their sin, yes, and he hated it. But he loved his people. His was a lonely and unhappy and unsuccessful life. And that led me on to other thoughts. Because I realized that this was actually true across the board. Um, this might start to sound depressing, but stick with me. If you think about all the prophets, really, um, almost without exception, they were failures. Isaiah, he had some success. Granted, Hezekiah listened to him. But then he was killed by another king who didn't want to listen to him. Ezekiel was completely rejected. Daniel had some success. Uh, he uh, was listened to by some kings, but it was far, we can't see that his own people were that interested in him. Um, the rest of the prophets were almost completely a catalogue of failures. In fact, it's quite possible that the reason why so many of the prophetic books are so short is because the prophet was killed after his first or second message. You know, it was a case of get up and say, this here is the word of the Lord, and then a rock to the head, and you're done. Um, it was not a fun situation. Looking into the New Testament... I thought about Paul, as we see him in 2 Timothy, which is the last letter we have of his, toward the end of his life. He'd worked for years serving the churches, and at the end of his life, he could be forgiven for wondering if it was all worth it. Uh, here's some of the things that he said in his last letter. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is here. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. <clears throat> of course, 
we can look at the bigger picture. Um, we can see now, from our perspective, things that uh, people in the Bible couldn't see. With Jeremiah, for example, we know that his writings were going to be kept safe, which is something of a miracle in itself when you consider the circumstances he was in. It's amazing that his, his writings were kept. After siege, famine, destruction, exile, and so on, he still his words survived. He was addressing his own people of his own time, but God kept his words so that future generations, not just one generation more, but thousands of years, all the way, frankly, till the end of human history, could gain and learn from what he wrote and what he said. I'm sure Jeremiah had no idea that that would happen. He died a failure, but God took his sacrifice and brought something far bigger. And with Paul, when he died, he was on his own. But we can look and see the immense influence that he has had on human history. I've seen uh, things which talk about him as being the second most influential person in human history, other than Jesus himself. We can see all of that. But my point is that they could not see that. Jeremiah died forgotten and rejected. Paul, the same. So many people in the Bible face this same situation. Everything they've worked for seemed to be lost and gone. And what about us? I mentioned at the beginning the ways in which we can uh, some, sometimes feel like things have been a failure. I think pushing this to the final, pushing this as far as we can go here, everything we do will fail in the end if we just look at the human level. Even the greatest things that happen fade. Uh, church, great churches are started and then they disappear. If you think about Paul, for example, he started churches in cities that don't even exist anymore. Um, a revival happens in a nation, and then a little while later, it seems to disappear. There was back, I guess it was maybe a little over 100 years ago, there was a, a well-known Welsh revival, um, which was great. Uh, like the whole country of Wales became Christian. A generation later, it was gone. On a personal level, we work and we strive to serve where God puts us, loving our families, doing what he tells us to do, serving our communities. But in the end, we will all die unless Jesus comes back first and our work dissolves in the end one way or the other. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible which is about this, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. <coughs> Here's how he begins the book of Ecclesiastes. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, so probably Solomon. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labor at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And that's just the beginning. He goes on for another 12 chapters. Um, we might not like that reminder sometimes, but we probably need that reminder most at the point where we don't want it. You're loving this sermon so far, aren't you? So, okay. That's, are we halfway? That's probably about halfway, so it's all right. It's uphill from here, I think. <coughs> I remembered one thing then. When I was going through this and thinking about it, I thought about one thing that Jesus said. 
Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And that got me thinking, because Jesus had the same experience as us. He worked and served and confronted and comforted and healed and so on, and in the end, he was crucified, rejected, and died. He worked for years, and in the end, even his closest friends abandoned him. A few precious women at the feet of the cross, that was all he had left. End of ministry, an end of life. Ah, but, you'll say, he came to life on the third day. So, there's the resurrection that changes everything. God brought him back to life forever, poured out his spirit, um, and changed everything. Death was defeated, and so on. Yes. But have you wondered why Jesus wasn't raised until the third day? Why wasn't he raised immediately? I think there's several theological reasons for that. Um, in the church tradition that I grew up in, the Saturday of the Easter weekend is seen as an opportunity to pause. It's an opportunity to follow along with the disciples on their journey. Despite the many things that they were told, they did not expect the resurrection on the Sunday. For them, Saturday was a day of mourning. It was a day of letting go of all their hopes and dreams of the last few years. Everything was gone. The person they'd followed was dead. And I think there's something very significant in this. A lot of our lives, we follow Jesus in his work. We, as Jesus served and as he worked and so on, so we do the same. Uh, it's like we're continuing his ministry now. But at some point, we then follow him into his death. It may come at the end of our life where we have nothing left to offer. Uh, everything's at an end. Or it may come at many different stages in our life. I mentioned a few of them uh, earlier that might occur, such as a divorce or death of a loved one, being fired from a job, a sudden and debilitating illness, a child we've reared so lovingly who turns away from God, or just growing old and feeling more and more the simple mortality of our bodies. <clears throat> and at that point, we share in Jesus' death. Remember what he said on the cross. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was a real cry from a real heart of pain. Everything was gone. And worst of all, in Jesus' case, God himself had gone. Jesus lived through those hours of pain. He literally could not move. And we might feel like that too, that we're stuck in this moment that's so painful, but there's no escape. And all we can do is live through it somehow. Ooh. And then comes death. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
When he had said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The prayer of a Jewish child at bedtime. And everything he'd done, everything he had accomplished, everything he was, he just handed over to God. All he could give now was his spirit and die. And that's all sometimes we can do. Everything's gone. I don't have anything left. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit because I've got nothing left to give. Think of it like coming to an altar with a sacrifice. We bring a sacrifice of our hopes, our dreams, whatever it was we worked for, and we lay it on the altar and we kill it. A hymn I was reading recently described our death as our final act of sacrifice, and it is. It's like we're living our whole lives as a living sacrifice, squirming on the altar, and then finally that sacrifice dies. Um, And after that, comes the pause, the Saturday. We've nothing left we can do. All our work has come to an end. All our hopes and expectations are laid down on the altar. Then's the pause. How long would that pause be? Jeremiah died forgotten and rejected. And into God's hands, he committed everything he had done, and he died. And he's waiting still, to be honest. He's waiting for the day when it will all be revealed. So are Paul, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and so many more. They are still in that Saturday, thousands of years later. But then comes Sunday and the resurrection. This is one reason why Jesus wasn't raised until the third day. He shares in our pause. He shares in our surrender. And it's also why Jesus was raised. Natalie, my daughter, <coughs> is at New Life Ranch right now, uh, summer camp. And she was talking to a girl there who asked the question, why was Jesus raised from the dead? <coughs> when I was younger, I, I had a similar question, which was, why was Jesus raised from the dead so that his disciples could see it? Why not just be raised from the dead straight to heaven, straight out of the tomb? Why was the stone moved out of the way? Why not just go straight to heaven? I think there's a few explanations for that, but Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians a very, very important one, which is because he was raised, we know we too will be raised. Here's what he says. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. We can't see into the future, but we can see into the past. Jesus was raised from the dead. Death was defeated. He is Lord. And because we see that in, our, in the past, we can now know our future because we too will be raised from the dead. Paul ties here the two things inextricably together. If Christ is raised, we will be raised. If Christ was not raised, we won't be raised. It's, there's no separation of the two. So we can look back at that past and know that there is a future. And this isn't just true of our bodies. I believe it's also true of everything we've done. 
When we reach that point where we lay down our life's work at his feet, we know that in fact we're entrusting it to the one who brings life out of death. Jesus' resurrection is just the beginning. Maybe, after, we've laid, after we lay everything on the altar, after the pause, he'll bring wonderful resurrection in this life. Maybe that child who turned away from God will return. I've seen that happen. Maybe he'll give us a better job. Maybe he'll heal the sickness. He's done that kind of thing in the past. He can do it again. But I think laying it down means letting it die. We don't lay it down with requirements or even expectations as to how God will then act because then we're not laying it down at all. We're saying, I'll give this to you, God, as long as you do what I want with it. But we have to let it go. We have to put the knife in the sacrifice and walk away. And maybe we won't see any resurrection in this life. I know in my own experience that there have been times where I've had to lay something down and walk away. And in most cases, that's where it stayed. I've just got to trust God that one day there will be a resurrection. Not a resurrection of that particular thing, but a resurrection in the sense that it will have been shown to be worth it like with Jeremiah, where he laid down his message, which was for his people, and that failed. It's not like later they did turn back, but God used his message in a very different way, in a much bigger way. So maybe we just have to let it go, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Paul, and Jesus. On that day, one day, for Jeremiah... Everyone will see the results of his service. And I don't just mean what I've already mentioned about how, you know, for generations people have been able to learn and gain so much from his messages. It'll be something much more. Look at Jesus after his resurrection. He had a body, yes, but it was so much more than his earthly body. Paul describes our current bodies as being like seeds in comparison to the beautiful bloom that will come to full splendor on that day. Here's what he says later in uh, 1 Corinthians. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And I think the same is true for what we've done and surrendered to God. What its fruition will be, we can't even dare to guess, but that it will be glorious, we can without hesitation say is true. But for right now, we are on this side of the resurrection, all of us. We serve God faithfully where he puts us. <coughs> we love those he brings to us. <coughs> Pardon me. Sorry. <laughs> Shouldn't cough down when your microphone's down, should you? Okay. 
We'll have wonderful moments of joy when everything seems to go well, and we will have moments of terrible sadness when everything seems to fail. The results are not our problem. We do our part, part wholeheartedly and trust God with the results. We know, frankly, that even our greatest successes will eventually die anyway. But whether at various stages during our life or simply at the very end of it, at those moments when it's all gone and it's just us and him, we can, in fact, breathe a sigh of relief and lay it all down and let it die. Then the pause. Then, one day, the resurrection. I want to finish with a poem. Um, I was just going to pull a couple of verses out of this that were particularly relevant, but actually I don't think that does justice to the whole poem, so I'm going to do all four verses. It's what's called a prose poem, which as far as I can tell means there's no attempt to rhyme. Um, <coughs> it was written by uh, someone called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who a lot of you will have heard of, I'm sure. And it's called Stations on the Road to Freedom. As most of you may know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian pastor and leader before and during the Second World War in Germany. Uh, he was angry with the church of his time for its compromise, and he stood up for a true Christian witness, which led him eventually to support one of the plots to kill Hitler. When it failed... He was arrested and put in jail. And a few months later, within weeks of the end of the war, he was executed. While in prison, awaiting his execution, he wrote this poem. And I think you'll find he says better and more briefly what I've been trying to say all along this morning. The structure of the poem uh, follows the Catholic tradition of stations or stopping places on Jesus' journey to the cross. Um, so that's why it's called Stations on the Road to Freedom. And you see that, for example, if you've watched the movie The Passion of the Christ, you see very clearly the, the 12 stations or stopping points along the way to the cross that the, in that tradition Jesus had. But what I think you'll, you'll find interesting is that this is called Stations on the Road to Freedom. But as we go through it, it'll look more like Stations on the way to more and more restriction. But it is precisely the path that Jesus followed. So as I read it out, think about how Jesus went through his 40 days in the desert fasting, and then his works, and then his suffering, and then his death. So this is his poem. Obviously, originally in German. I'm not going to do it in German, so don't worry. <coughs> Discipline. If you would find freedom, learn above all to discipline your senses and your soul. Be not led here and there by your desires and your members. Keep your spirit and your body chaste, wholly subject to you, and obediently seeking the goal that is set before you. None can learn the secret of freedom save by discipline. Action. To do and dare, not what you would, but what is right. Never to hesitate over what is in your power, but boldly to grasp what lies before you. Not in the flight of fancy, but only in the deed there is freedom. 
away with timidity and also reluctance, out into the storm of event, sustained only by the commandment of God and your faith, and freedom will accept you with exultation. Suffering. Oh, wondrous change. Those hands, once so strong and active, have now been bound. Helpless and forlorn, you see the end of your deed. Yet, with a sigh of relief, you resign your cause to a stronger hand and are content to do so. For one brief moment, you enjoyed the bliss of freedom, only to give it back to God, that he might perfect it in glory. Death. Come now, queen of the feasts, on the road to eternal freedom. O death, cast off the grievous chains and lay low the thick walls of our mortal body and our blinded soul, that at last we may behold what we have failed to see. O freedom, long have we sought you in discipline and in action and in suffering. Dying, we behold you now and see you in the face of God. Today is Father's Day. I know I haven't addressed that directly until this point, um, but what I want to say about Father's Day is this. Um, rather than um, saying, well done to fathers or anything like that, I wanted to end really with a challenge to fathers and say, fathers, it is your job to lead your family in all of this. Take the lead in discipline. Disciplining yourself, first of all, and teaching your children discipline. Take the lead in action. Doing, not being afraid, and showing your family what it means to follow Jesus. Take the lead in suffering. Maybe especially as you get older, you can still show your children and grandchildren what it means to be restricted more and more and entrust everything into the hands of God. And take the lead in death. There's a reason husbands are supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. There will be a point where it is finished. And you lay it all down at the feet of Jesus and let it die. Then comes the pause. And then one day, the resurrection. Let's pray.